In the early 1500s, a man named Nicholas Copernicus put forward the outrageous idea that the earth orbited around the sun. Before that time, virtually everyone, including almost the entire scientific community, believed that the earth was at the center of the cosmos, or at least at the center of the solar system, and everything revolved around the earth. And, and it would be obvious to think that, wouldn't it? Because we go outside and we look in the morning and it, oh, it looks like the sun is rising. And then at midday, it looks like the sun has traveled about halfway across the sky. And then we look in the evening and it looks like the sun is now setting or going to bed, as we sometimes tell our kids when they're little. So you can imagine how unpopular Copernicus was when he put forward his thesis that actually the sun was at the center of our solar system, not earth, and we actually orbited around the sun. In fact, his idea was not only novel, but it was seen as an attack on human dignity. If you read some of the other scholars in Copernicus's day, it becomes obvious that they viewed this as a human dignity issue. Because, to their thinking, the reason humanity had worth and value was because we were at the center of all things. And therefore, if all of a sudden it is true that we are not at the center of the universe, if we're not at the center of the solar system, then where do we derive our worth from? Where do we derive our value from? All of it goes out the window. And so they rejected Copernicus for a long time and his views. Apparently, we humans like believing that we are at the center of all things. But Copernicus was right. Today, in fact, we know that the earth actually orbits around the sun. We know that the earth is not at the center of the solar system. But we humans still like thinking that were the center around which everything orbits, even oftentimes God. Just think about the number of books in the last 10 or 15 years or the number of podcasts that have been recorded or written, kind of forwarding the thesis or the theory that God's purpose in the world is to give you what you want or that God's highest goal is to never let you down or to make your dreams come true or to give you what you want. Like, we don't need any help inflating our own importance as humans. Like, we do that pretty well ourselves. Which is why passages like this passage here in Luke chapter 15 are so important. So my goal for our time together this morning is that we would perhaps, for some of us, have a a Copernican-type experience, that we would see God and his greatness and his glory in a new way, and that that would re- and rightly orient our lives according to scriptural truth, that we would see and that we would celebrate the fact that we are not at the center of all things, that in fact God is. And that God does not owe us anything. And my goal is that that truth, rather than making us feel small and making us feel 
completely worthless, that that truth would actually do the opposite, that that truth would actually help us to see how the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's rescuing of sinners through the work of Jesus actually gives us greater reason to delight in him. And so, this passage this morning is a gracious reminder of the monumental difference between God and humanity. And it's also, at the same time, a gracious reminder of God's love, a love that saves undeserving sinners, a love that makes us his children. Like this passage is a reminder of the gratitude that is produced when we realize that God is infinitely greater than we could ever truly comprehend in all of its fullness. And yet he has chosen to love us. He has chosen to adopt us as his own. And that that truth of a big God and a little us and a glorious gospel would create in us such joy for God that we could not help but worship differently. So, I've titled the message this morning, Grateful Servants, Merciful God. Grateful Servants, Merciful God. There'll be no slides this morning. That's what you get when, when I come back from vacation. No slides. So Jesus, here in Luke chapter 17, is continuing to teach what it means and what it looks like to live as a God follower. So follow along as I read, picking up in verse 7. Word of the Lord says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's just be honest right from the start. These are not necessarily the most comforting words that Jesus has ever spoken. In fact, even as, as Sarah was reading them a moment ago, or I was reading them just now, you might be thinking, well, this is not usually the kind of image or kind of picture that Jesus gives you of, of God the Father. This is, this is not the, the Jesus who is gentle and lowly among us, although he is also that, right? This is a bit of a different perspective that we get here in these verses, We have a servant coming home from a hard day's work in the field, and his boss says, hey, I want you to make dinner before you get cleaned up, before you relax, before you put on your fuzzy slippers. I want you to make dinner for me, and then I want you to serve me dinner, and then after you serve me dinner and you get everything cleaned up, then you can have dinner, and then after that, you can go and you can relax. We're a bit uncomfortable with that arrangement, aren't we? Because we're used to stories, I think, where authority is usually used badly. Or where the servant becomes the king or the queen. Or where godly leaders serve instead of insisting they be served. 
And this seems an awful lot like maybe the boss is more like the wicked stepmother and the servant's a little more like Cinderella. Like we wonder, okay, what, what in the world is going on here? Well, first, as we try to understand what Jesus is getting at here, notice that this is a rhetorical question from Jesus. So when he says, will any one of you have your servant relax on the couch while you fix him dinner, the, the implied answer is no. Like, of course we wouldn't do that. A servant serves their boss. That's their role. That's their identity. And everyone in Jesus' audience would have understood that. Again, it's easy for us today to get hung up here and we we think back to Jesus' words when he said that he came not to be served, but to serve. Or we remember Jesus' teaching that those who would want to be great should be the servant of all. And all of that is true. But here, this morning, Jesus is not making a statement about the attitude of a leader. He's making a point about the difference between the creator and his creation. In fact, you might remember that back in Luke chapter 12, verse 37, in Jesus' parable, the master prepared a meal for the servant. So there's no contradiction here. Jesus is showing a different dimension of the same truth. So in one sense, God has given all of us far more than we ever could deserve. And in another sense, we don't deserve any special rewards for obeying the Lord. Like it's simply what we're required to do. We're not owed anything from God. Everything we have been given is a gift. So just again, so that we're all on the same page, this passage is not about excusing rudeness. It's not a pattern for leadership, like leadership lesson 101, do this. Rather, it's a shocking picture meant to show us that everything we are and everything we have is owing to the Lord. And every sacrifice we make and every cost we incur and every moment of service to the Lord is simply a response to the very one to whom we owe our existence and everything. So again, the goal this morning is that that truth would reorient our thinking, recalibrate our thinking because we are prone, all of us are prone regularly to begin to drift, to begin to think that we are maybe more important than we actually are or more deserving than we actually are of the favor and the blessing and the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this Jesus here then is challenging our natural tendency to think that God owes us something. Which is common, isn't it? Like that's common to humanity, to think somehow that God owes us something. And maybe we see this most clearly reflected in the kinds of questions we ask when things don't go the way we want. Questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? Or why doesn't God save people? everyone or why didn't God heal now those are those are natural kinds of questions to ask we're human after all but oftentimes the root of those kinds of questions that we ask the root of that goes something like this 
There is a God who has created all things and he has given us all kinds of freedom to kind of do what we want and now God's purpose, like a doting grandparent, is to kind of step back and with a smile to watch us kind of do whatever we want and to be there to help us. To be there to assist us to achieve our goals or to be true to ourselves or to follow our heart or to make our lives more, uncom- more comfortable or enjoyable. I mean, he gets us after all, right? And so with a worldview like that, we read, if that's our worldview, we read the words of Jesus here in Luke 17 and we think, like, what a jerk. Like, here these laborers come home from a hot day in the sun and their boss doesn't even give them the evening off? Like, he's not, we don't even have in the text where he gives them like an Arnold Palmer and is like, hey, just take five minutes. Instead, he's like, oh, you're back? Good. I want you to change into your, your, your dinner serving clothes now, roll up your sleeves, and prepare something tasty for me, because it's just about dinner, and I'm, I'm getting a little bit hungry. His boss probably hasn't worked outside, probably has not been slaving away in the heat of the day. He's probably just been lounging around. Like, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? The boss in this narrative represents who? The Lord. The Lord. He is the creator God. He has eternally existed. He never had a beginning. He will never have an end. His wisdom is perfect. His strength is absolute. There is nothing in all creation that even comes close to his knowledge or his power or his glory. And if God were able to even be measured or even if it were possible to measure the distance between God's glory and our own, it would break the scale. Like God is not just a little wiser than we are, or a little stronger than we are, or a little more capable than we are. He is beyond comparison. Like in Genesis, God spoke and everything came into existence. In Exodus, He sent catastrophic plagues on a nation of people who were his enemies and at the same time opened the sea to rescue his own people. Throughout Israel's wanderings, he fed a nation of people with food that fell regularly from the sky. He kept for 40 years their clothes from wearing out. He opened the ground to swallow up those who rejected him. He destroyed fortress cities with his own power. And in the New Testament, he raised his son to life, that through that work he might forever save those who by faith trust in him and change their entire eternal destiny. 
Friends, this is why after we pick up our cross to follow him and after we go to war against our sin and after even in the midst of our temptations we seek to sacrifice to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and even after we serve for the work of the gospel and even after some Perhaps even some of us in this room may give up our lives for the sake of the gospel. Even after all that, when we rightly understand who God is and who we are, the proper response is, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You see, it's it's really all about perspective. Like if we think that we are worthy of salvation or worthy of God's blessings or worthy of his favor or at least just a little more worthy than the person sitting next to us, we won't respond like this. We will respond with entitlement. Like, of course God would bless me. And when God doesn't do what we want or doesn't answer prayer in the way we'd like or heal or save or provide as we ask, then we're tempted to get angry with God. As though he were somehow some sort of peer. Or maybe if he's not a peer, at least he's like maybe just a supervisor to whom he, you know, we, we do good things for him and so he owes us favor. Instead of remembering This is God we're talking about. You see, it is impossible to be angry with God if we rightly know God and ourselves. Because anger indicates injustice, that God was somehow not fair. I don't think we want what's fair. From God. What's fair is eternal conscious torment away from the presence of God because of our sin. And yet, tragically, sometimes we, we in our own hearts and minds, we, it's almost like we're bartering with God. Well, why would you do this to me? I don't deserve this. I've been a good person. I've attended church. I've served the Lord. I've been on the mission field. I give to the work of the gospel. You see, sometimes we can be confused at the work of God because God's ways are not our own and we're bewildered and we're confused. God, I don't understand. And sometimes we can be disappointed because what we were hoping for doesn't align with what God values and what God is doing because, again, we don't have the minds of God. But if the truth that God is really God has sunk deep down into our soul and we rightly know that we deserve nothing from him but that everything is a gift, then no sacrifice we could ever make is too big. And regardless of God's actions or inactions in our life that we can perceive, our response can always be we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, There are a couple of words here in verse 10 that I think are are worth kind of hovering over for a minute. Because they're words that the Bible uses sometimes and are used here, and yet we today use them in different ways. I don't want to make sure we understand what the Bible's saying 
and how the Bible's using these words. The first word is unworthy. You see that there in verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. Unworthy does not mean worthless. Like worthless means having no worth. But we are valued by the Most High God who created us in His image, which means every life has worth and value and dignity. Because God has infused worth and value and dignity into every life because he is its creator. Unworthy means not worthy of something. And in this case, not worthy of our place as adopted children of God. We are are not worthy of God saving us because if we were worthy, it would mean that we could somehow attain salvation or attain adoption by God on our own. And the gospel is clear that we can't, which is why God the Father sent God the Son to live without sin and to willingly die as a substitute on the cross for the sin of all who believe. And God raised him from the dead three days later, defeating sin and death, So that all who trust by faith, believing in him, might be saved and might be adopted into his family. The whole basis of the gospel is that we are unworthy of salvation ourselves. Which is why Christ provides salvation for us. Salvation is then a gift. It's received by faith. The second word worth a closer look here. In verse 10 is the word duty. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And duty has gotten kind of a bad reputation probably over the last 60 years or so because oftentimes we contrast duty with desire. So we think then that duty is the opposite of desire. Like I desire to do something and duty is the opposite, opposite of that. And so duty is like a, okay, fine. I'll do this because I know I have to or I know I should, but I don't want to. And we define duty kind of like that, at least unofficially. But, but in the Bible, that's not what duty means. In the Bible, duty refers to the obedient response of the faithful. Duty is the obedient response of the faithful. It's how we respond as faithful children of the most high God. Like, Do we have a duty as Christians to live and act in certain ways? Absolutely. Do we have a duty as Christians to walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh? Absolutely. Do we have a duty as Christians to pursue certain things and put to death other things? Yes. All that's a part of our duty. It's a part of our obedient response as faithful children of God. But our duty as Christians is not a like grit your teeth, just try to to clench our fist and get through. Our duty as Christians is fueled by our love for the Lord and our gratitude to him for all he's done for us and for who he is. So, if you were, let's say, your life was saved, you know, you were, you were pushed out of the street, you know, rescued from an, a speeding 
bus down here on, on 48 by someone. And they've shoved you out of the way just in time and uh, at great risk to themselves. They are injured. Now they're, you know, they're, they're in a wheelchair for a while, but they, they saved you. They rescued you. You would have been killed. And they're like, hey, would you, just, would you mind meeting me tomorrow and helping me get from my wheelchair uh, into the house when I get back from, from physical therapy? And your response is, how long do you think it'll take? You know what it would demonstrate? It would demonstrate that you have no idea what has just taken place. Like You have no idea what you have just been rescued from. How this one individual has forever changed the trajectory of your life. And how much more, right, for the God who has saved us, who has redeemed us, who while we were yet sinners sent his son to die for us, while we were enemies, Christ would die and would rescue us that we might be made his own children by grace through faith. How much more should we live, right, each day rather than thinking, well, what else is God going to ask of me? Thinking instead, how else do I get to serve? Like, it's a joy to serve. Like, what fuels our duty as Christians? It's gratitude and joy for who God is and all that God has done. And the more we truly understand the depths of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the depths of what we have been saved from, and the more we understand the bigness and the glory and the holiness and the majesty of God, the more joy we will have that he would not only make us his own children, but that he would then invite us into a life of joyful work for his glory. Because he is God. Because he has saved us. And so our duty, our obedience to the Lord is not an attempt to repay the Lord. We can never repay the Lord. Our duty is a worshipful response to the merciful work of the Lord on our behalf. It's fueled by gratitude for all that God is and all that he has done for us. And that's really the tie-in with the second section here. It begins in verse 11. Look at verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Luke is not just giving us GPS coordinates for Jesus. He's not just adding needless information. There's a point to this. You might remember all the way back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus begins this journey. Jesus has his face set. He was resolved to go towards Jerusalem. He was resolved to be obedient to the Father. He knew that Jerusalem was the place that he would suffer and he would die. And on his way, he meets 10 lepers. Leprosy was a a serious illness that affected the whole body and it also affected most notoriously the skin. And it was highly contagious, which is why there were laws and regulations about those who had leprosy. They, 
They could not live among everyone else. They had to live sequestered off by themselves in in leper colonies. Their only contact with the outside world was to beg for food and money. And so you can imagine how hopeless these lepers would be. And as Jesus passes by one day, from a distance, they cry out for help. And Jesus does help. Verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. And as they were on their way, or as they went, they were cleansed. And going and showing themselves to the priest was part of what the Mosaic law required for those who had been cleansed. That they might officially be declared clean. And so Jesus is again fulfilling the law. As we saw a few weeks ago, he says, I've not come to overthrow the law. I've come to fulfill the law. Jesus is doing that here. He sends them on their way. And as they are on their way, they are healed. As they were responding in obedience, their leprosy went away. God works a miracle. God makes them whole. That's interesting, isn't it? That it, This happens as they were on their way. Sometimes God heals instantly. Sometimes he heals right away, even now. And sometimes God doesn't heal in the way we would expect because, again, his ways are beyond our ways, are beyond our understanding. And at other times, like here, God heals, but he heals as we walk in obedient faith. You could just probably imagine that the lepers talking amongst themselves as they're starting this journey, right? Looking around like, why in the world is this crazy rabbi having us go to see the priest? Like, I don't look any different. You don't look any different. I'm still sick. You're still sick. Like, what, what, what are we going to even tell the priest? Maybe another one says to the first, you know, well, this is better than sitting around. It's begging all day. At least we have something to do now. Like, at least let's go. The rabbi told us to go. Let's go. We've got his permission to go and see the priest. Let's, let's go and do it. What, what could, what's the worst that could happen? Maybe a third is thinking, okay, we need to at least get our, our story straight. Like, what are we going to tell the priest when we... Wait a minute. L- look at your skin. Like, do you feel different? Wait, wait a minute, look at, look at you, look at, look at you. And all ten are healed. The Lord heals them. And yet only one rightly responded with worship. Verse 15, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So of the ten men, this this man who was a Samaritan, Jesus tells us, is the one who comes back. This this guy is a non-Jew. He's the one least expected and least likely to see his healing as a reason for worship. And yet that's exactly what he does. He connects the dots. He rightly connects God's work with God's worship. And Jesus' purpose here is, 
is to teach us more than simply to say thank you. This is the point that connects it to this, the parable of the unworthy servants that we just looked at. These two sections are woven together with the common theme of gratitude and worship. Like we deserve nothing from the Lord. Anything we get is a gift. And therefore, every gift from the Lord should rightly lead us to obedience and worship. And that's exactly what this Samaritan does. He understands the work that God has just done in his life. And it leads him to worship. He recognizes he doesn't deserve this healing. Like he's not even a Jew. Which maybe was all the more reason why he responded in worship. Because he knew intuitively, I don't deserve anything from God. What about us? What about us? I want to draw this to a close this morning with kind of four application points that will just basically summarize all the things we've seen in the text this morning. First, as not yet perfected Christians, we naturally gravitate towards a distorted view of God and ourselves. Let me say that again. As not yet perfected Christians, means we're not yet glorified, we're not yet fully sanctified, not perfectly like Christ, we naturally gravitate towards a distorted view of God and ourselves. Like we don't need any help to think more highly about ourselves than we ought. We need to be reminded that we are unworthy of the kindness and the grace of God because our obedience does not earn us God's favor. It doesn't buy us a place in God's family. That only comes through the unmerited grace of God for all who believe in Jesus. Secondly, we saw this morning that there is a difference between the creator and the creature monumental difference. God owes us nothing. He is God. He is righteous and holy. And apart from Jesus, we are unrighteous and sinful. Which should fuel a a reverence when we come before God. We're sharing in first service. One of the things that hurts my heart sometimes, and I'm grateful that I don't really sense that here, but, but occasionally, as I'm in, in places, when God's people gather to worship, there is sometimes a, a tragic lack of reverence. And by reverence, I don't mean somber, but I mean a, a weighty joy. Like when we gather, we're not here to hear a, a moralistic TED Talk. We're not here for a concert or to have some sort of sing-along with Uncle Matt around the guitar, right? That's not why we gather. We're here because there is a God who spoke everything into existence and who rules and reigns and with a word can vaporize everything that is or sustain everything that is. 
And that God of all power and all glory and all majesty has chosen without any merit on our own behalf, has chosen only 100% because of his grace to provide his son to live and to die and to rise again and one day to return. That all who by faith trust in him might be adopted into his family and forgiven of our sins and cleansed and given an inheritance in glory with him. We need that, which is one of the reasons God has designed the church to come together because at least once a week, we need that reminder. We need that recalibration because everything in our own hearts and everything in our fallen world wants to tell us that we are at the center of the solar system and not the glory of God. And we come in here and and Matt leads us in the songs and we sing together and we read scripture. It's one of the reasons we open with, uh, with scripture that we read together because we want the word of God to call the people of God together. We want to re- be reminded that the reason we gather together isn't just to help each other feel better. We gather first and foremost together because there is a God who is ruling and reigning. He has made us a family. He has made us his own. And so we come together joyfully and gratefully, but we come together also with a, with a reverent joy. We come together as as survivors who have been rescued from the pit of death, a death of our own doing by the unmerited grace of God. And so we do delight and we do celebrate and we do joy, but there is a, a gravity in that joy because we recognize there is a God without whom none of this would be possible. Third, our obedience then is simply our duty. It's simply our response. Our obedience is our response to all that God is and all that he has done. Like we shouldn't get an award or expect a medal because we serve the Lord. Like even if we sacrifice our very lives for the sake of the gospel, it's not as though, well, I don't know, I'm going to count the cost. Is it really cost-benefit analysis? Is it really worth it? In light of who God is and all that he has done for us, in eternity with him in glory versus the brief vapor of our life here on earth? What what sacrifice is too great for that? And this is the reality of a disciple, to pick up our cross and follow Because we have been profoundly transformed by the love of the God who made us and redeemed us. Finally, number four, our thanksgiving, our our gratefulness, our thanks, our worship is an indication of the fact that we see God for who he is and we see ourselves for who we are. Like people who rightly see God for who he is, rightly see ourselves for who we are, are not people then who grovel. Because we have the gospel. Like a, a, a vision of the bigness and the power and the glory and the holiness of God does not lead us to think, I'm just, I'm just a useless worm. It reminds us 
that we deserve nothing. And it more lavishly demonstrates the incredible kindness of God that he would choose to adopt us and love us and save us and make us his own. And the natural then response to that reality is, how can I not worship? How can I not sing? How can I not praise? How can I not go to the nations? How can I not disciple my family members? How can I not go to war against sin and temptation for all that God has done and for who God is? So we're going to do that now. We're going to sing to the God who has created all things and the God who has redeemed a people for himself through the work of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me? Father in heaven, we, we need this Copernican reorientation regularly. I thank you that you love us enough to give us your word. God, guard us, protect us from the lies that say that if we're not at the center, then we don't have value. I pray that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds as we see that it is in grasping and celebrating your bigness and your glory and the unmerited salvation in the gospel. That's what gives us our identity. That's what gives us joy. That's what gives us security as we rest in you and in your saving grace, knowing that we are made your children not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, Father, only because of your love. I pray that we might rest in that love this morning and that as we sing to you even now, it would be an overflow response to your salvation. I pray for the one or two or ten in this room or watching online who are not trusting in you this morning. I pray that even as your word has been sung and prayed and read and proclaimed, you would be at work opening blind eyes and softening hard hearts there would be one or five or 20 who, who turn this morning and trust in you by faith. They would seek out someone seating or sitting around them or come up front after service and talk to someone they saw on the platform. And that you would be even at work in your saving power this morning. I pray that our reverent joy and our gratitude to you would, would grow would spread as we relish the fact that you are God and that you are good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.